So about a month ago, I decided I wanted to preach. Um, and I told Tim that I wanted more structure rather than less structure, so I got that passage. Um, and he told me that it was about humility, so thanks, Tim. Got the message. Um, and, <laughs> you know, I, I agree, it's definitely about humility. Uh, Paul reminds us that we proclaim, um, that we don't proclaim ourselves, and poses an analogy of clay jars to remind us that while we while we proclaim the gospel, we remain worldly, flawed, mortal, dust, you might even say. Um, however, uh, this passage makes me think about more than humility. I also, perhaps more powerfully, think about audacity. Um, audacity, yes, that term made trendy, nay, I say sexy, a decade ago by Obama. It actually has been 10 years since Audacity of Hope, so don't you feel old now? Whew, where does time go? Um, so. Uh, you know, what makes me think of audacity here? Well, Paul's proclamation that he and others carry the light of God and preach the gospel. He says, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give uh, the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here, God's light is literally shining out of our hearts. Um, Paul also says, but just as we have the same spirit of faith that is in accordance with scripture, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we speak because we know the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us with Jesus and will bring us with you into his presence. And here Paul expresses confidence that God will bring him and his audience into God's presence. These statements are bold. Uh, while Paul asserts the brokenness of the messengers, he's simultaneously asserting that they are messengers for God and will eventually be united with God. Um, so today I'm, I'm going to tell you a few stories about audacity and the, rela the relationship between audacity and humility. Um, and I don't really know how to explain the relationship between these values, and spoiler, I won't. Um, you know, they're, they're seemingly opposite values. If you truly know your limitations, can you really dream big and act on those dreams? But like any good tension-filled relationship, it's unclear whether these values are mutually exclusive, uh, two sides of the same coin, symbiotic, or somehow inexplicably all three, at these, uh, all three of these at the same time, or none of them. Um, I don't know. So in a deficit of answers, I'm going to tell stories. Originally, I was going to tell three stories, but then it morphed into four. But the fourth one's really short. So uh, <laughs> my first story uh, is about my girl, Monica Lewinsky. Um, so who here has been following Monica Lewinsky's comeback? I don't, I don't really know if comeback is the word for it, but that's what I'm using. Um, and as you might know, in the past few years, Monica Lewinsky has become an anti-bullying advocate, especially focused on internet culture. Uh, there have been articles about her work in Vanity Fair and The Guardian. She has a TED Talk that apparently English teachers are now showing in high school classes when they teach The Scarlet Letter. Um, and, you know, I really don't like TED Talks, uh, but the other day I found myself drunk in bed re-watching that TED Talk and just weeping. <laughs> um, and, you know, I got worked up for a few reasons, most obviously because I was drunk. Uh, but. <laughs> More importantly, um, you know, a few things. First, I love stories about redemption, but where redemption doesn't involve changing yourself, um, but it involves realizing that you're worthy of love. Uh, second, I was nine or so when the scandal happened, so you know, old enough to have agency, but young enough to unquestioningly buy moral codes that society explicitly and implicitly dictates. 
Um, and I, I can't really recall too many specifics. I remember uh, my mom asking me if I thought Clinton should be impeached, and I was like, I don't know. Uh, and I also remember my brother, who was in eighth grade at the time, talking about uh, boys in his class being like, yeah, if I was president, I'd do that too. So that's uh, you know, really the specifics I remember, um, which aren't, aren't particularly scarring. Um, but I also know that our country was collectively responsible for this woman's public shaming. And you know, I was old enough to be complicit in that. Um, but I was also you know, young enough, again, to have my views shaped. Um, and you know, I feel like this is something that shaped my view of sexual morals for a period. It played into a larger narrative that all of us have probably received, that there are consequences to women's sexuality. Um, and you know, I've, I've found that to be true in the real world, which is even more upsetting. Uh, but it's something we make true. It doesn't need to be that way. Um, and then finally, uh, you know, I think it really got to me because you know, Monica Lewinsky reemerged into the public sphere um, a few years ago when I was 24, which is the same age she was when the story about her and the president was made public, um, and when dozens of hours of personal conversations with Linda Tripp, who she thought was her friend, uh, personal conversations about her intimate relationship with the president were made public to the entire world. Um, and you know, there's a, a certain sort of empathy that's engendered in timing when you're the same age. It's kind of like how the Harry Potter books came out at the same age that I was Harry Potter. I mean, that Harry Potter was, I was never Harry Potter. Um, so in Lewinsky's TED Talk, she describes herself as patient zero of internet shaming. She tells us, overnight I went from being a completely private figure to a publicly humiliated one worldwide. Granted, it was before social media, but people could still comment online email stories, and of course, email crude jokes. I was branded a tramp, a tart, slut, whore, bimbo, and of course, that woman. It was easy to forget that that woman was dimensional, had a soul, and was once unbroken. She talks about the months after the scandal when she thought about suicide, never attempting it, and how her mom made her shower with the bathroom door open and sat next to her as she fell asleep to make sure she didn't kill herself. Um, in interviews, Lewinsky talks about the decades following the scandal and being unable to land jobs or find a life partner or even find volunteer opportunities because of the stigma attached with her name and her story. Um, and so what gives one of the most publicly humiliated figures of modernity the audacity to tell the world, hey, you kind of uh, messed up my life, and even though I made big mistakes, I don't deserve what you served me. Well, not surprisingly, her mom. Um, Lewinsky speaks about how her mother called her tearfully after the Tyler Clemente story broke. Uh, as some of you might recall, Tyler Clemente was a college student uh, who killed himself after he was outed by his roommate. His roommate outed him uh, by secretly filming a sexual encounter between him and another man um, and making it public. Lewinsky talks about being you know, confused at first about why her mom was so upset, and then realizing it was because her mom was remembering 1998 the year when she feared for her daughter's own life because of similar public shaming. Monica Lewinsky's reframing of her own story and courageous re-entry into the public sphere is a result of her realizing that her own pain was not isolated, but a pain shared by many people who find themselves survivors of the more cruel side of the internet. Which brings me back to Paul. Paul talks about how our suffering is intimately connected to our liberation. He writes, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, 
always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. And while I agree that pain and alienation are an integral aspect of our personal and collective liberation, I want to pivot to how we can face this. Paul writes, it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who is shown in our hearts. Um, some people you know, really need to be reminded they're dust, that they're clay jars. Others know this far too well. For some of us, the world has told us not only that we're clay jars, but that we're broken and dirty clay jars, and we believe it. I hesitate to attach the word humility to, to, humility to such a state. I think that probably self-loathing is more accurate. And when we find ourselves in such a place, it's much easier to accept something outside of ourselves than within ourselves to fully face this pain. And this is where the light of God comes in. The light of God might come from a tearful call from a parent, or the encouragement of a mentor, or a friend or stranger saying, that happened to me too. And the light of God might grow as we share and act and lean into that pain and find ourselves embraced by a world where we thought we didn't belong. Um, audacity can happen when God brings light to the most painful and flawed elements of our lives and tells us you're loved, you're not alone, and you have something to share. So that's my first story. Um, my second story is about Paul the Apostle. Um, and you know, I talked about audacity a lot in that last story. I'm going to keep talking about that, but also talk about humility a bit more. Um, so let's just talk about Paul for a bit. Paul left what I assume was you know, a comfortable job with a recognized religious institution to travel around the Mediterranean and establish and grow religious communities where everyone drinks blood together. Weird. Uh, moreover, he's working for a movement whose adherents he used to persecute, whose adherents continue to be persecuted during the time of his ministry. Um, and in the meantime, he's also getting a lot of flack from fellow apostles because he's pretty chill about accepting non-Jews into Christianity. Actually, he's more than chill. Um, he's actually quite insistent that they be actively recruited into this new movement. So how did Paul's mission come about? Um, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story of Paul's encounter with Jesus, who at this point had been dead for quite a while, on the road to Damascus. I actually had a similar experience this past week on the Dan Ryan. Do you have that picture? So I was driving. There's, I, I know there's Jesus there, but I, that's not real. That's just a thing in my car. But there was a boot in my rear view mirror. There was like a boot driving on the road. I don't know if you all can see it. It was like a boot driving. It was in my rear view mirror. And then I turned around, and it was still a boot. And it, I was stuck in traffic, so I took a picture. And that's really not connected to this story. I just wanted to tell you all about that. Uh, <laughs> so. Uh, but you know, in the aftermath of Paul's encounter, uh, Paul shows humility in completely transforming his own life. Uh, he owns up to the mistakes of his past. But in entering that humility, he also acts audaciously. He establishes communities that would allow Christianity to flourish in the Mediterranean, and his correspondence with those communities uh, lays the bedrock of Christian theology. Um, so, hey, this is the point where I like become an amateur Paul scholar. I borrowed three books from Neil about Paul. I read half of one, uh, so I'm going to use that plus like intro to the New Testament plus just like my own experience with Paul's letters to tell you some stuff about Paul, and you can take what you will. Um, so, you know, what I think is funny about these letters is I don't really think Paul was trying to uh, write foundational texts of a religion that would live 2,000 years into the future. Uh, he was trying to get people to get along. Yes, you know, a lot of his letters are about how his theology is better than other people's. Uh, but the way I read these letters is that 
Paul is insistent on the supremacy of his own theology because he believes it will most effectively build beloved community. Um, remember Paul's the, Paul's the guy that said, faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. Um, there's another that I forgot to put in here, but where he's, he's like the greatest of all commandments is love your neighbor as yourself and love God with your whole heart or something like that. Um, and then he also said, you know, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Um, when I read Paul, I hear him saying, stop finding ways to divide yourself, just love each other. Um, and, you know, basically what I, I think is going on is Paul's getting ready for Jesus to come back pretty soon, and he wants to make sure, one, as many people as possible know about this so they can actually enjoy the second coming. Um, and then he also wants to make sure that communities that are anticipating this are really built around love so that, you know, when you do get new people into this movement, they're like, cool, I want to stay here rather than being like, you all are annoying. Um, and so, you know, it's funny because in Paul's letters, I feel this wonderful coexistence of humility and audacity. Uh, these letters are, you know, slightly mansplainy, really. They're like five pages, single space, 10 point font, just like telling people things that, like, I'm like, this is so obvious. Um, but, you know, I get it. It was like before the internet and before cars. So, like, if you wanted to have a correspondence with someone, it was going to take a long time for that letter to get there. So you better say everything you want to say. Um, and, you know, again, the letters are so right. Uh, they're like annoying, but they're right. When I read Paul, yeah, I'm just like, Ugh, yes. Ugh. Um, and so I want to circle back to our reading. In this passage, Paul poses a relationship between brokenness and boldness, humility and audacity. We can proclaim the life of Jesus specifically because of our mortality. We're not God, we're messengers. Um, God has specifically chosen us as messengers because of our flaws. And this assertion seems inherently tied to building strong community. If we wish to coalesce around a calling higher than our own existence, we need to be humble enough to recognize our internal flaws, such as infighting, and external challenges, such as persecution. However, we can great, more gracefully deal with these internal and external challenges um, if we see them not as barriers but as, in fact, the very things that draw us to this higher calling. Paul humbles his listeners by pointing out what holds them back, but emboldens them by asserting that what holds them back is what lifts them up. So that's my second story. Uh, my third story, you know, when Tim was giving me tips for this sermon, I pretty much have not followed them, but he said I should talk about myself, so uh, I can do that. Um, as many of you might know, I'm an organizer, I work for the Sierra Club, which is an environmental organization, and I mostly work on climate issues. Um, and so you know, I don't really know how to describe my job, but when I have to, I say, you know, I work with people to have us come together around our values to show our collective power in a lot of different ways, uh, to put pressure on decision makers, mostly politicians, to make policies that are going to benefit our health, benefit the planet, um, et cetera. And I feel really lucky to be able to organize. Um, and it's kind of by seeming coincidence that I started organizing. I was actually Facebook stalking someone. Um, and they had liked this organization called New England Climate Summer, which was a summer internship for college students where you learned organizing skills and engaged in the climate movement in New England. Um, and I ended up applying for and doing this program. And then uh, after coming back to Chicago for school and getting really involved in a campaign that successfully retired two coal plants in Chicago. Um, and then, you know, after that, was able to start doing organizing after college professionally. Um, and I, I kind of shudder to think what my life would be like if I hadn't Facebook stalked Gemma, Gemma who liked climate summer. Um, 
And you know, not that my life would necessarily be bad, but there would just be this big thing, organizing, that's such an important part of my life right now that wouldn't be part of my life. My life wouldn't be my life. It would, it would be someone else's life. Um, and my first year organizing, again, when I was a student, I was so much bolder than I had ever been in almost kind of an unhinged way. I was so determined to recruit people and develop leaders and win campaigns and build a movement that I found myself out of my own comfort zone a lot. And I was fine there because I cared so much. Um, I hadn't really previously had a ton of confidence about my ability to effectively convince others to take action. That seemed like something that you know popular people knew how to do, which is not how I thought of myself. But because I was so engaged in this issue and felt that it was so urgent and so profound, um, I was kind of fearless. It wasn't about me, it was about the world. And I found, I found myself more audacious than I ever had been. And uh, during the time I started organizing, I'm sure I frequently seemed arrogant, manic, out of touch. But at the same time, it was one of the first times in my life when I wasn't consumed by my own insecurities, uh, which I think can be its own form of arrogance or at least self-absorption. Yes, I still had insecurities, but I was less worried about what it meant about me and more worried about the implications that it might have on the broader movement. And I've since mellowed out a lot. And I don't actually know if in the process I've become more or less humble. On a surface level, I'm more humble. I'm less of a piece of work. Um, but I'm also less invested in this greater cause. I'm less willing to personally sacrifice. Um, and I'm more willing to compromise. What was once a raging fire that was sort of a strange combination of hope, fear, and indignation has cooled a bit. And while I'm more of a normal person now, I wonder if I'm truly giving the world what it needs or if I'm just giving myself what I need, and if there's a difference between the two. I occasionally find myself haunted by the world as it should be, and everything that I do and don't do to maintain a very broken status quo in the name of my own comfort. And I'm especially haunted by this when I hear stories about resistance. Yes, I'm inspired by those stories, but it, it also brings this like self-doubt. Um, so as many, I'm sure most of you know, Muhammad Ali died this weekend. Um, all these people keep dying, and I keep being like, oh, they were alive, which is really bad. Um, but I, you know, and I didn't actually know a ton about him, which is also bad, because he was an amazing person. So I learned some from like, lots of Facebook memes that were posted, where I was like, holy shit. Um, so things I learned about Muhammad Ali. Um, he famously refused to enlist in the military when he was drafted during the Vietnam War, identifying as a conscientious objector because of his Muslim faith. Um, and because of this, he spent five years in jail during what would have been the peak of his career. And uh, he said of this decision, I ain't dodging, I ain't burning no flag, I ain't running to Canada, I'm staying right here. You want to send me to jail? Fine, you go ahead. I've been in jail 400 years, I could be there four or five more, but I ain't going 10,000 miles to help murder and kill other poor people. If I want to die, I'll die right here, right now fighting you if I want to die. You my enemy, not no Chinese, no Viet Cong, no Japanese. You my opposer when I want freedom. You my opposer when I want justice. Of the impossible, Ali said, impossible is just a big word thrown around by small men who find it easier to live in the world they've been given than to explore the power they have to change it. Impossible is not a fact, it's an opinion. Impossible is not a declaration, it's a dare. Impossible is potential, impossible is temporary, impossible is nothing.
So I want to end with some questions. You know, knowing your clay jars, knowing that you can do nothing of meaning alone, and even if you think you're doing it by yourself, there are so many people who came before you who made it possible, whose shoulders you're standing on. Knowing all that, knowing that you're dust, what's the impossible that you want to make possible, that you want to make reality? And you know, hopefully that question is overwhelming <laughs> because there's a lot of things that are messed up in the world. Um, so I guess to sort of make things more manageable, um, my second question is, what is your pain? How have you been hurt? And this might be something that's been done to you, but this might be things you've done to other people. And go to that most vulnerable place, and that's where you'll find God. <laughs>